0: Friday, Larry Elusiato Crane, your host, on a journey through logic and all that it means, on a journey through the latest news and some impartation of wisdom, if that's a word. I don't know if it is. Everything I say on this podcast is strictly my personal opinion and my personal opinion alone. It is me speaking to you as a private citizen. Nothing I say should be reflected or should be construed to be the opinion of any other entity. None of this is legal advice. This is strictly just me talking to you for the purposes of entertainment, but also because we are all participating in reality, even though I have a smooth delivery and background for you. It's been two weeks since I last last talked to you, and so much has happened, so much has gone on, but still the news cycle seems to be repeating itself so often that the stories seem to be regurgitated every week, so I'm not going to dwell Forever on it. I'm going to touch base on some of the most recent news, give you my educated, informed opinion on it, and then we are going to move on. My good friend of the show, Neil, is on tonight to talk about inflation. We all feel it, don't we? Seems like everything's a little more pricey homes, cars, materials. Food. You ever go to the restaurant? It's like it's it's all subtle, right? It's subtle. It's like, well, the bill seems a little higher than it was last time that I'm used to. That little shopping trip to the grocery store seems a little more pricey than I thought it was going to be. It's always subtle, but there is definitely some price fluctuations out there, and they seem to be on the high side. So it seems like in you know inflation is hitting us. We're going to have Neil on with his. Finance sector acumen to discuss uh, the ins and outs of that and what's being done or what could have been done. The Fed met this week, so he's got some uh, information on all of that. We're going to talk about that, and I look forward to talking to Neil. For now, I can tell you as I usually do: I'm seated here in downtown Newark, New Jersey, right on Broad Street, looking out at the New York City skyline, the Newark City skyline, and it is beautiful. And a blaze Gregory Porter is live at New Jersey Performing Arts Center tonight. I wish I had known. Great jazz artist. If I had known, I might not even be on the show. I might have gone there tonight, but I didn't know. So I'm here with you, and I'm happy to be here with you. It's funny. Every, every other Friday when I'm scheduled to go on the show, around like, you know, 12 noon, 1 o'clock, I'm usually still working, and I'm trying to figure out, like, you know, what's my vibe tonight. And usually around that time, I'm like, oh, shit. I got the podcast tonight. I better be ready. What am I going to talk about? I got to really sit down and do this tonight. But I'll tell you, by like 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, I start putting the playlist together. I start vibing a little bit. I'm looking out at the sun setting over these glorious skylines, and I start getting into the mood, and I start thinking about how much I love being here, talking to you guys about what's going on and how much I love this space and this medium and how dope it is. And we will continue to grow it. I know it's, it's slow, slow, but surely it's limping. But we will grow it. And once I'm done with this musical project, which I can happily report is really, really turning the corner. Really, though. Like, benchmarks are being met as of this week. Uh, as I get past that, I'm going to put a lot more effort into the mediums and the promotion and everything we do here. But without further ado, I mean, let's hop into the news. I think... Uh, Personally, I think one individual on longtime listener might be really uh, interested in this first bit of news because this is uh, hits really close to home to one of our Arizona r- listeners. Rick, Rick's been telling us about this for probably almost it's, it's going it's almost a year now. Rick has been letting us know how disgusted he's been with this. And we can happily report today that Rick is completely vindicated. I mean, and and Rick's always making good points. So Rick's vindicated a lot of times. But Rick was completely vindicated today. This uh, Arizona recount, this Arizona recount regarding Trump, and I, and I, I might be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure that the entity that conducted this particular audit of the votes was called the Cyber Ninjas. Is that true? And Rick, if you know more information than I'm letting on, feel free to jump in the comments there because, what the hell was going on with these cyber ninjas or whatever they were i mean what's going on with that apparently the cyber ninjas who got their way and were able to conduct an audit of the arizona vote uh came out today with their uh final tally their results of their audit and it turns out that after their audit now remember this is a pro gop this is yes yeah, he saw so a florida a florida-based trump company and they're biased towards trump this uh cyber ninja group So apparently they conducted this audit and it was GOP-backed. It was Trump-backed. And they thought this might yield some proof that, in fact, the election in Arizona, at least, was fraudulent and that there were fraudulent votes and that the counting was corrupted. And, you know, Trump actually won Arizona, yada, 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 yada. Well, they came out with their results today. And it turns out, according to their own results, this is a pro-Trump entity. According to their results, Biden actually got 99 more votes than they than the official count and trump actually got 261 less votes trump got 261 less votes than the official count so this pro-trump pro election misinformation group came out this week and said flat out actually according to our calculations Trump got 261 less votes than they counted. The margin for Biden has grown when the cyber ninjas are on the case. A pro-Trump group has determined that Biden won by even more than they originally thought. How crazy is that? It just proves more and more and more how bad that misinformation campaign really was. I mean, it's like yesterday's news, right? But isn't it funny that the same people, many of them, who were proliferating that fake news at the beginning of the election, or right after the election, I should say, at the beginning of this ordeal that Trump really won and blah, 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 promulgating this false information, which led to the January 6th incident. Are some of the same people now that are pushing the anti-vax shit, is that really a surprise to anybody? I assure you, it's not a surprise to me. No, it's just interesting, right? But anyway, <laughs> I knew that shit was misinformation from the beginning. Most of us knew it was misinformation from the beginning. We all knew it. But now it's vindicated that it's actually misinformation. And it's true. Rick Rick points out the truth, right? At the end of the day, these people all showed up. They all showed up protesting and all of the nonsense. And at the end of the day, it was all based on falsities. Just like they're protesting and raising all this hell about the vaccine, it's based on falsities, too. It's the same people. They just pivot to the next conspiracy because they got nothing better to do. But it was interesting. So more Trump nonsense. We pretty much moved on from Arizona. Trump faces an investigation in Fulton County, Georgia, because remember that whole fiasco and Trump called the Georgia secretary of state and tried to lean on him to change the... Uh, election results of Georgia. All this other nonsense. There's an active investigation in Georgia now about that. He's on the hook for that. He's in trouble for that. So that continues to go on. The House, the House actually passed a bill, which is, you know, this is the kind of stuff that really aggravates me, though. like the House passed the bill, but we know it's not going anywhere. So it's kind of just like a letdown. Like the House can pass a bill all at once. Right. But at the end of the day, the Senate's not going to pass it. So it really has no teeth. So why do we even, you know, care too much about it? But at the end of the day, the House passed a bill. I mean, even if it's symbolic, it still makes a difference because the House passed a bill essentially reigning in presidential powers and i apologize for that noise outside somebody's got an absurdly absurdly loud stereo system i mean it might be fun to be riding around right now in it but i can't hear a damn thing but now it's gone um They passed a bill that would rein in presidential power severely and and, and it was targeted to Trump. I mean, it's no no disguise. They're essentially saying that pardons themselves could be construed as a thing of value for purposes of bribery. So if a president offers to give a pardon for some quid pro quo return, uh, a pardon could be construed as a thing of value. So it comports with the bribery statutes, yada, yada, yada. they put some provisions in there that the president would have to answer and respond to subpoenas because we know that the Trump administration uh, tried to obstruct in many ways with regard to uh, congressional subpoenas. So there's an interesting bill in the House uh, that also deals with Trump. That's just worth noting. As is the Georgia investigation in Fulton County. Um, look, somebody remarked today, and you know, I, I don't. Somebody essentially. I I posted something about the Arizona recount and how it really yielded no extra results. It didn't change the outcome of the election. It actually, like I just said, bolstered Biden's victory over Trump. And an individual commented on that status. And they said, look, essentially, that was a waste of money, right? Why didn't the uh, Republicans just take an L? Why didn't they take a loss and just move on? Why, Why was it the way it was? Why did they pursue it? And I agree with that. And an individual then comments and said, well, the impeachment wasn't free either. Insinuating that, you know, we shouldn't have impeached him because that was also a waste of money and they should have just taken the L, yada, yada. We can discuss the first impeachment later. But the second impeachment involved this whole misinformation campaign. The second impeachment involved this whole um, insurrection incident. And the second impeachment was premised essentially on Trump's actions leading up to the insurrection. And one of those actions was him trying to interfere in Georgia certifying the results. They tried to interfere in various states uh, certifying the results. And then he essentially incited his followers to go obstruct the process of certifying the election congressionally. And the Fulton County investigation in Georgia is important because I just, you know, I thought the the House did a really good job in the impeachment trial, the second one, of laying out the case as to why Trump was culpable for his actions leading up to the January 6th insurrection. And I think any president uh, leading a country that claims to have free elections, who engages in that type of uh, misinformation campaign, which does culminate in a violent riot in order to obstruct the results of a free election, there definitely should be consequences and they should be taken to task for it. And it's interesting because people like Mitch McConnell and other prominent Republicans who initially they voted down impeachment, right? They declined to convict Trump. And had they convicted him, it would have prevented him from ever holding office again, all these other consequences. They didn't convict. Yet after they chose not to convict, they got on the podium and they started railing against Trump and basically condemning all of his actions leading up to it. Yet they didn't have the spine to convict him. Well, hopefully one of these local investigations, and I'm not saying this as a partisan, right? I'm really not saying this as a partisan. I'm not talking about this because I dislike Trump or whatever, this is an objective reality, right? It's obvious at this juncture that Trump promulgated misinformation and incited a riot that threatened the sanctity of our democracy. I mean, it's really not in question anymore. And the fact that congressional leaders in the Senate failed to convict him of the crimes that he so clearly committed, yet turned around after voting down conviction and publicly acknowledged the uh, discrepancies and acknowledged the crimes that he had committed and essentially railed against his actions is a real shame, right? They should have done what they obviously believed to be true and convicted him. So now we are left with these local investigations, and I truly, truly hope that these local investigations in Fulton County, in New York State, uh, anywhere else, that they yield some results because he should be held accountable for his actions. There should be some record on paper somewhere that he's convicted for what he engaged in. Because for f- the future, whether he's running or whether it's just a consequence or a deterrent to future executives who may have an inkling to engage in the same type of activity, hopefully a conviction would deter that type of action. So it's just worth noting. It's worth following. Um, and it's also worth noting that Biden news came out today that Biden will not uh, restrict the release of information related to January 6th. So. um Biden is set to release details of Trump's actions on that day. So it should shine a little more light as we go through this inquiry uh, of the January 6th insurrection. It should shine a little more light and give us a little more information as to exactly what Trump was engaged in uh, and, and what his actions were on that date. It's just worth keeping an eye on. The vote tally situation in Arizona is hilarious. I mean, I... Stopped speaking to certain people who were proliferating fake information about the election, because to me, you know, you could say a lot of nonsense about vaccines. You could say a lot of nonsense about all different issues. Right. But when you start getting toward the sanctity of our democracy and you start putting blemishes on that and you start calling into question the results of a free election, And using social media misinformation and mass ignorance as a mechanism and tool to topple our democracy and a free election. Now you're really speaking to the heart of the matter. Now you're dealing with my soul, right? Because I deeply believe in us having free elections in this country. So so I couldn't tolerate it. And I, I stopped speaking to several people. And I stopped giving several people the platform on my social media and my, you know, mediums to spread it. And I don't regret it one bit. And this this result out of Arizona today vindicates that because it was all BS. It was all BS from the beginning. In other news, we have this uh, Gabby Petito thing. And I don't take it lightly, right? It's it's a murder. Young girl was murdered while hiking with her boyfriend out West. And I'm not going to get too too much into it. I mean, this isn't a, a true crime podcast, um, but... You know, it's just it's just also worth noting, you know, the the controversy that surrounds that and just the, the general societal reaction we have to those types of things. Right. So every few years, if not every year, right, every few years, the nation gets kind of fixated on one case or another. And nine out of 10 times, these cases really should just be local homicide cases. Right. It should be local homicide cases, but people, for whatever reason, it goes viral and it gets out in the media and it gets out on the HLN and all these different things. Nancy Grace takes it up and all of a sudden it becomes a hot button case and everybody's following it. You know, it's like a tabloid case. We had it with O.J. Simpson. Uh, We had it with Peterson. We had, you know, all these different cases. And, you know, Casey Anthony. So it's nothing new. It's interesting now in today's 2021 dialogue and in 2021 societal paradigm that now I'm seeing all these stories saying, well, you know, everybody's worried about Gabby Petito, but, you know, we should worry about people of uh, minority descent. They go missing too. Why is everybody concentrating on this case instead of a different case? There's some validity in that, right? There's some validity in that because it's, it's no secret that, Uh, scores of Native American women, scores of African American women, et cetera, go missing every year. And there's not that much attention paid to it as opposed to a case like Gabby Petito's case. right? And if you follow me on social media, you follow me at all, you know that I'm constantly trying to publicize and I'm constantly trying to get viral you know social media support for some of these missing persons and some of these individuals who have been senselessly killed especially in my home city uh, especially of minority descent uh, to try to get attention to it it's an unfortunate societal thing we should look at and we should be introspective in analyzing it but i do think that it's some of it is just a, a, a human phenomenon right this gabby petito and this laundry guy who they're looking for who still has eluded authorities Uh, as of today um the fact is you know and siren points out something good there's a reason for the lack of cooperation uh from the boyfriend i think it's honestly just a confluence of all kinds of issues right i think you never know what's going to catch fire because you could say the same thing about any case that the left is more fixated on right talking about police violence cases police brutality cases uh there are several types of cases of, those, of that type. Several cases of that type, I should say. Excuse me. That that happen every day. But some cases just catch the attention of society. Some cases just catch the attention of the media. And they just cause this rapid communication amongst people that results in like a, a, a notable... Uh, case and and Rick makes another good point. It's just that it's just it's just for some reason or another people get fixated on one case or another, and it just happens that they f- start following it, and they it just it just generates interest. And Rick makes the point. It's kind of like it has a lifetime storyline. It does. They have the body cam of the domestic incident, right? She's a young girl. She's also a YouTube travel blogger. I think they overemphasize that angle a bit they act as if I think she was like already a viral sensation before this I don't think so I think she and I don't know you tell me if I'm wrong because I haven't followed the case as much I think she started to kind of blog and post on YouTube after she started going on this trip, right? So she was on this trip and she was blogging about her van and their journey and then she turns up missing and then because she's already on YouTube and because it's interesting to people, it just takes a life, takes on a life of its own and people start running. with it. So it's interesting. I'm not trying to knock people that say, you know, we should be introspective of ourselves as a society and we should look at some of the cases that don't get the same amount of attention. But I don't think it's intentional. I don't think it's necessarily the result of any kind of societal uh, you know, inequality. I think it's just more the result of this is just how the society is, is how humans are, right? A lot of what I say is just I kind of fall back on this is human nature. This is what humans do. This is who, what humans are. And I think we just gravitate towards certain cases. And some of it's just what other people are sharing, what other people are talking about. Whatever is popular out there in the realm of social media and the media itself We will gravitate to, we will discuss We will talk about, because that's a, a topic Of conversation And these Algorithms are serious, because by the way, I started Like, it's a side, it's a tangent, but I started this like Miami Dolphins podcast Because I'm a Dolphins fan, it is what it is And I know I'm in for a weekend of hurt, we got a starting Quarterback out, I don't think Miami's Going to win, and Rutgers is playing Michigan, and Michigan is doing Very well, despite Rutgers 3-0 start I don't know, I'm in for a world of hurt this Weekend, but it's beside that I started this podcast and like from the beginning, right? The first couple shows I aired, I was getting 500 plus views like very 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 quickly within a few hours of releasing the video. And I viewed the video on a, you know, a, an outside account once. And they asked me when I was viewing it, some little pop-up came up from YouTube and it said, "What do you find interesting about this content?" It was like Like, A, it's interesting. B, it's controversial. C, it's what. So YouTube was trying to see why, I think. YouTube was trying to ascertain why my video was kind of going viral to kind of see who they could point it in the direction of, I guess. Kind of interesting, right? Because it just took off overnight. I just started the podcast and it was getting hundreds of plays. Well... It's hard to devote so much time to these endeavors. As you guys know, I'm doing this show all the time. I had that show. I'm writing for things. I have a day job. So it's hard to maintain the interest. I think a lot of social media people, like, they really have to dedicate themselves to putting content out constantly and really dedicate finances and energy and everything else to really go viral if that's their goal. And, I just stopped. I'll be honest. The season ended. I didn't have as much enthusiasm. And there's guys on there that get so big that Miami radio personalities who are notable have them on their shows. They get money. People are paying $5 a pop just to highlight their comment. I mean, it's a lucrative thing. But I stopped for a while because I just didn't have the energy, right? Anyway, my videos are getting $500 a pop. $500 a pop. And all of a sudden, I I released another video maybe three months after I had been on this weekly thing. And all of a sudden, I get 40 views. And it's like impossible. It's like hard as hell for me to reach even 50 on any video I put out lately on that same channel. And my subscribers are stagnant and everything's stagnant. And one person commented, oh, I'd like to see more content more quickly or whatever. The reason I bring that up with relation to the Gabby Petito thing is I think that these algorithms too, they're, they're looking, I feel like they're searching for the next big thing. When there's a new news story or there's a new account or there's something new, a new video, a new meme, a new gif, something new, I feel like the algorithms are trying to see if it's got the potential to go viral very early. And then if it dies, not only do people lose interest and not see it, but the social media algorithms, the Internet algorithms, even the search engine algorithms, dare I say, stop putting that story or that topic at the top of the list and people stop seeing it. I think YouTube stopped putting my videos in general search topics at the top of the list, et cetera. So it died down. I don't think this podcast gets any type of publicity or um, algorithmic uh, benefits or algorithmic um, preference, should I say. And so I think part of the reason is just this Gabby story took off. It just did. It is what it is. I think that's what's going on in our society. If something takes off at the local level, then the national media picks it up. At the social media level, then the internet, then the media pick it up, et cetera. At the Twitter level, then the media picks it up. At the YouTube level, then Twitter picks it up. Then blah, 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 blah. It's just this odd phenomenon of viral things. And this Petito case has seemed to kind of take that on. So it is what it is. We follow that case. We hope they catch laundry. He's wanted for questioning at the very least. I think he's going to be wanted for murder. We'll see what happens. Uh, in other news, internationally, you know, just I wanted to put in perspective. You know, we constantly talk about this country and all the injustice in this country and et cetera, et cetera. I'm not saying we don't have injustice in this country. But some of the freedoms that we enjoy are just a whole different level than other places. So news came out this week that the Taliban was now reinstituting public executions for people convicted of murder, which, hey, we kind of have public executions, maybe for that or against that, depending on the standard of evidence, et cetera, et cetera. But they're also bringing back the amputation, the public amputation of limbs for people that are convicted of stealing. (laughs) Literally, you're going to cut people's limbs off because they're stealing. The Taliban has said, that, and when they're questioned about this, they said, hey, look, we don't want the international community critiquing our laws. These are our laws. You're from the outside. We do this. This is what we do. Period. Terrifying, to be honest. So we may have some arbitrary laws, but, you know, take a look around the world. It's not as if The United States is some beacon of oppression as compared to the rest of the world and the rest of human humanity. They're reinstituting amputation of limbs for stealing, and they're acting like it's acceptable. In the United States, you steal something once. Cops may look the other way. Steal something twice. Maybe you get probation. I mean, come on. These people are losing their limbs. So this whole idea with the Taliban, too, it's getting worse over there. We can still debate Biden and Trump's decision to pull out of there the way they did. In India, 30-plus men have been indicted for the gang rape of a 15-year-old girl. Now, it wasn't all at once, thank God. But apparently her boyfriend recorded himself raping a 15-year-old girl. And then he used that video to pass around to other men in the area who then extorted her with the video because she was shamed of the video. They basically used the video to threaten her so that they could then engage in sexual activity with her. And up to 30 men have been named as individuals, suspects, and charged with the rape of this 15-year-old girl. Now, this whole rape culture slogan... Just so you know, the whole slogan came about from India because in India, these types of violent gang rapes. It happened when a young teenage girl was raped on a bus with several objects and she actually died from the trauma. That's where this rape culture phrase came from. That's where it came from. Right. And I'm not downplaying our use of the word rape culture in the United States because there's a problem, but it's a different problem. Right. And the only reason I bring this up is, again, not to hold the United States as some beacon of of justice and, and everything. But compared to the brutality and terrible nature, you know, human nature around the world, you know. You got to put in perspective some of this international news. And that's why I even brought this up this week. I usually don't do international news so much unless it directly relates to a U.S. You know, involvement somewhere. But it's just worth noting the atrocities that go on in the world, not to say, oh, we should be fine with status quo or we should look at them and be grateful for our own Problems, but just to put in perspective, the the amount of pain, trauma, oppression, uh, brutality that goes on in in the world, to then shine a light here, you know, it just puts in perspective what we should value about our society, and it is worth protecting, and it is worth, you know. Representing in a positive light, even though we may demand change. It, it just is. It just is. We can always do better, but we, we, we've made certain human advances that shouldn't be overlooked. And definitely should not be taken for granted. And obviously that, that includes the melodrama about vaccines and masks, right? Every time you turn around, there's some melodramatic post about somebody's freedom being stolen and how oppressed they are and how America used to stand for something. And now they're against their will, being subjected to harsh, experimental medical treatments. It's so melodramatic when you think about the fact that the government in Afghanistan is cutting people's limbs off, severing people's limbs over stealing probably food that oh you have to wear a mask to enter a certain public building or oh you can't go into certain buildings if you didn't get a two second shot where the side effects at worst are over in a day and you oh the horror are now immune to a terrible disease for the foreseeable future spare me the melodrama So you could look at when you look at international news and you compare it to the United States, there's so many different angles you could look at it from and draw certain conclusions that are valid, that are logical, because this is logic and Larry. With that in mind, the whole vaccine thing, yada, yada. Today, Biden came out and said, look, and the CDC came out and said that people are people are um, entitled now, if you've had the Pfizer vaccine you can get a third booster shot. Well, well, it's a second booster, a third shot, right? Third overall shot, second booster shot you can get. What was interesting about that announcement today was that uh, Rachel Walensky, who's the CDC chief, actually overruled the Center for Disease Control, the CDC's advisors. The CDC's advisors had actually said That they were for vaccines for people who were old or young or had serious pre-existing conditions that would place them at higher risk for complications or death from COVID. But they didn't necessarily see the necessity in vaccinating people who were frontline workers for a third shot a second booster i e you know first responders medical personnel they didn't necessarily see the utility in that quite yet they again i talked about this last last show right I talked about how they get so far ahead of themselves sometimes in the media and in certain uh, political circles with trying to advocate for a vaccine and saying how dangerous the current variants are that they almost shoot themselves in the foot. Because by saying that everybody, regardless of health, regardless of anything else, need a second booster. They're almost saying that the first booster and the first vaccine was not effective enough, which again undermines the idea that the vaccine is safe and effective because it is. And so the CDC advisor said there's no need for healthy young people to get another booster. Remember that analogy I did last show with the 98% uh, body proofing and uh, a bulletproofing on somebody's body? I discussed how chances are you're not going to get struck in that one... little vulnerability you have. I understand people at risk getting a third booster because it'll up that immunity. It'll up that protection a little bit and it's worth it for people who are at high, high risk because why risk it? Give them another bit of protection. Why is it going to hurt to give them a little bit more protection? It's not. But on the other hand, why do people that are already 98 or 90 something percent protected who are young and healthy just because they're frontline workers why do they need it the the advantage is negligible right Compared to the outlay of more resources invested in supplying these boosters to people who are otherwise already protected from the first round of shots. So it was interesting that Walensky did this, and I think it's a political move, right? Because the FDA said it's safe and it's fine for people to get a a second booster. And now Biden came out today pretty much, you know, banging the podium saying, hey, Frontline workers should get a second booster shot. They should have three shots. And it's political. And I don't know that agree. I agree with it. It's just something to, to watch. Biden was really going all out about this booster shot. And the CDC chief overruled her own advisors to tell people to get it. And this is the stuff you got to be wary of. I'm definitely not one of these people who says, be wary of the media all the time. Don't be a sheeple, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But, Sometimes you got to use your own head and look at where some of the motivations are coming from. It's a little odd that the CDC advisors say one thing and the chief overrules and then Biden comes out that day. And I call that out because, you know, it doesn't need to be that way, right? Like we we say we're relying on science, but then when a panel of scientists says something, we overrule them because we have our own ideas, right? I wish that somebody would truly just rely on science. I truly wish somebody would just rely on science and not put us in this position. So it's just interesting. At some point, if you want to get the third booster, I think they said eight months after your first shot or six, I think eight months, maybe six, I think eight. It's not going to be a bad thing, but wait till the guidance makes sense. You know, right now, I don't know that it does for everybody to do it. Front line or not. If you're at high risk, go get it. You know, I'm not telling you not to. You do your own research, but it's just interesting to note. Why does everything have to be so politicized? And speaking of Mr. Biden, President Biden, what the hell is he doing? <laughs> what is Joe Biden doing right now? What is he doing? Internationally, we just talked about the Taliban. We already know how Afghanistan. What I talked about on the last show, I'm not going to belabor it. But how about this border situation? Remember I said, I think I might have said it, I might have mentioned this border situation in the summer when I did that little mid-hiatus summer show. And I definitely mentioned this border situation last show. I definitely mentioned the border situation last show, without a doubt. And what I say about it, what I say about it, I said last show that Biden had a lack of a policy at all at the border, right? I said he was so shell-shocked by Trump's ridiculous policies that were meant to deter, that turned out disastrous and were inhumane, that Biden was allowing the border problem to fester and to grow into more of an issue because he was so hesitant to have any policy at the border. I said that and it was growing into a problem because there was no policy whether it's going to be middle of the road policy, hardline policy, soft policy, whatever, there was just no policy. There was no cognizable viable policy at the border. Biden was just not doing anything. And what did it culminate in this week? That's a, a he has bad optic after bad optic after bad optic this guy. You had a so because there's so much misinformation, as I've come to ascertain, there's so much misinformation about the border. People are getting it through word of mouth, this and that. They don't know what the policy is. It seems like it's a soft policy to some, to others. It's a hard policy, whatever the case. All these Haitian refugees, all these Haitian refugees wind up in Texas and there's a there's a absolute border crisis. Not that there wasn't one already, but it just got exacerbated even worse because of a lack of policy from the Biden administration in part and then you have the absolute terrible pathetic optics you couldn't you couldn't draw up in a in a parody a worse optic than a damn border patrol agent on horseback with whatever it was uh, some kind of strap. Look like a whip wailing off on people running back across the damn river. On horseback. How bad? You couldn't make up an optic as bad as that. And yeah, he said today that the individual who's responsible for that, the end of the agent who was on horseback, would be held accountable. And horseback is one thing, right? Horseback, that's like a hollow connotation. I get it. It's a historical hearkening back to something that, you know, sometimes officers are mounted, this and that. It happens. But the whip, and I mean, what are you doing? And not to mention that the Haitian people, with all the turmoil going on in Haiti right now, are at serious need for refugee status. It's completely understandable why they would come here. Give us, you're tired, you're poor, you're hungry. What the hell else are they right now? Everybody was mad at Trump when he said shithole countries, and so was I. Well, why is Biden deporting these people en masse when a month or two ago his policy was up in the air so much that border people and ICE officials didn't even know what they were supposed to be doing because they weren't supposed to be doing anything because their hands were tied due to lack of policy. Now, all of a sudden, they're loading up Haitians by the bunch and sending them back. You know, is Biden a friendly to immigrant refugee person or anti or middle of the road? Are there criteria he's looking at that have to be met? I'm sure there are, but he's doing a terrible job of publicizing it. If there are uniform standards or a uniform policy anywhere. What's he doing? You know, at first I resisted because I know the whole Obama policy on the border was misconstrued and Trump used the loophole and kind of the technicality to accuse Obama of setting up the youth holding cells. When we all know Obama set up a policy to separate children from suspected child traffickers, Trump just used it as a catch-all, as a general deterrent to separate any child from any adult. We know but what the hell is Biden doing? I defended and resisted the criticism at first with the border, but there's no excusing this anymore. He seems like he just doesn't, you know. It seems like Joe came in with a whole lot of zest because he knew he had to unseat Trump because he knew Trump was a real detriment to this country, which I agree with. Right. It seems like Joe had a ton of experience as a senator and he was a real statesman for decades. Right. And it seemed like he maybe thought that goodwill and a fun personality and just loving America was going to get him through four years as president of the United States. And I don't think that's working out for him too good in the first year. Because you also got this whole, this this infrastructure bill debate. And this is what's going on with that. Now, you know, I'm a huge, huge, huge fan. One of the best things I thought Biden put forth in his agenda and his platform was investing in our national infrastructure. The New York, New Jersey corridor is desperately in need of tunnels and rail, etc., bridges. And the country's in desperate need. There's no excuse for us falling behind other countries in our infrastructure. None. Our infrastructure is crumbling compared to other countries. So I've been such an advocate for his infrastructure agenda, right? And He got this $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill through the Senate with 19 Republican senators supporting it. And I applauded that and I applaud it now, right? And I apologize for the sirens. I mean, again, I'm broadcasting raw and live from Newark. But he got Republican support for this thing. He got it to the House. Moderate Democrats... Said they want to vote on that one point two trillion dollar bill, ASAP, right? There's no use in holding it up. It's already passed the Senate. As soon as the House passes it, it goes right to the president's desk. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you pass this bill? And I agree with them. They got Nancy Pelosi to set a hard deadline for a vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill, the one point two trillion dollar bill for this coming week, the twenty seventh of September. But the progressive caucus in the House, the progressive caucus led by Congresswoman Jaya Powell from Washington, has said that the progressive caucus is going to vote against the bipartisan infrastructure bill. They're going to vote against that bill because it's not tied to right now. It's not expressly tied to. The Bernie bill, the $3.5 trillion, quote, human infrastructure bill. And if they don't get everything they want in entitlement spending, they're going to sink an infrastructure bill that we all agree we need. And the Republicans, Kevin McCarthy, who basically has shown himself at this point to be nothing more than a Trump lackey and somebody out for himself politically who has no interest in governing responsibly for the United States. He has the audacity, despite the fact this is a bipartisan bill, despite the fact that 19 Republican senators voted to pass it, including even Mitch McConnell, despite the fact that we need it, that it's highly popular with the American people, Kevin McCarthy, the Trump lackey, has now started to officially whip against support for the bill. So McCarthy is actively trying to get Republicans not to vote for the bipartisan bill. So on one side, you have the McCarthy people and the conservatives just trying to obstruct, not because it matters, right? His excuse is, well, we already know it's tied to the $3.5 trillion Bernie bill. That's nonsense. Actually, the reason it's coming up for a vote on its own is because it's not tied to the $3.5 trillion Bernie bill. It's not tied to that bill. But he's just making stuff up because what he cares about is not substance. What he cares about is not policy. What he cares about is not spending. It's not taxes, right? All McCarthy cares about, he's from this 20-year-long Republican strategy. All he cares about is obstructing the process and handing Democrats and Joe Biden a loss and getting himself and his Trumpy army a win. He doesn't care about what's good for the American people. He doesn't care about what we need as far as infrastructure. All he cares about is giving Biden a loss, giving Democrats a loss. But on the other side, the progressives are so hell-bent on getting everything they want at once that they are going to tank it too, quite possibly. As of right now, five Republican members have said that they will support the bipartisan infrastructure bill. But the progressive caucus within the Democratic Party, I think, is about 60 deep, 90 deep. So if even half of them don't support it and only five or 10 Republicans support it, it's not going to pass. It's not going to pass. So this infrastructure bill we need so badly is in limbo with McCarthy on one side and progressives on the other, threatening to tank it and completely derail it simply because of this other way bigger bill that has nothing to do with infrastructure. That's all about entitlement spending. And you know why I brought this up while I was talking about Joe Biden? Well, here's why. Because Joe Biden was the one who initially caused this problem, right? If Biden had said from the beginning, the next thing on the agenda... And this is what initially was reported. It changed all of a sudden. If he had initially said that the next thing on the agenda is bipartisan infrastructure, the next next thing is infrastructure, period. Hard infrastructure, bridges, tunnels. After that, we are going to move on to entitlement expansion, human infrastructure, I'm going to work with Chairman Bernie Sanders to present a bill for human infrastructure. But next up is hard infrastructure. If he had just stuck to that plan, we would have never been in this realm where it's all or nothing. You either give me all the human infrastructure plus the hard infrastructure, or we're going to sink it. He got progressives in that mindset. He decided that that was his plan. He was the architect, the White House, the administration was the architect of that idea that we're going to encompass human infrastructure with hard infrastructure. We're going to present it all at once as this massive over $5 trillion bill. Now, whether he was talked into that by Bernie Sanders and that crew, the progressive crew, Or whether he came up with it on his own, I don't know. But either way, he's culpable, right? Because he's the president. He's either got to make a tactical stand against the left in that meeting, or he's got to come up with a better strategy. But what he did by tying the two together was threatened to sink all of it. And that would hand him an epic loss. Optically, it would be terrible. Terrible. And even if this $3.5 trillion passes, the House, Manchin and Cinema have already said it's not passing the Senate at that price tag. So tying the two together that now got progressives in that mindset, now they're in that paradigm. They're in the paradigm that this is intrinsically tied together, even though it's not, right? We need the infrastructure, and we may or may not need all the entitlement spending. We may or may not need all the infrastructure spending, but they're two separate issues, And they should be debated and talked about and discussed and drafted and constructed as two different things. Because they are two different distinct pieces of legislation. Trying to tie them all together so that they sink or, or swim together was a terrible miscalculation on Biden's part. He got progressives in that way of thinking. So now they're like, I'm not passing this unless I get all of what I want. So we may all suffer. We may see next week. We may see next week. Since McCarthy is being an anti-American and whipping against the bill, and since progressives want all or nothing, and they're throwing a tantrum, we may see a much-needed $1. trillion hard infrastructure bill get flushed down the toilet because of this political nonsense. And a bunch of people in Congress that really are not competent enough to do the job. Now, do I predict that that's the long term ultimately what will happen? No, I don't. Right, I don't. I think if it fails, it'll come back up for a vote when they get this human infrastructure thing up. The House will pass both. Once they pass both, the $1.2 trillion bipartisan deal goes right to Biden's desk. He signs it. We get it. We start working on our infrastructure the human entitlement expansion infrastructure bill goes back to the senate and when it goes back to the senate it's dead on arrival if it's 3.5 million because of mansion and cinema's dead on arrival and so they'll start working so actually in in practicality in reality i think the bills are going to be separate and i think one's going to become law and the other one's going to get debated as they should separately but next week there might be a lot of bad optics because they're going to adhere to the compromise they made with the moderate democrats they're going to put it up for a vote they're going to put the 1.2 trillion dollar infrastructure bill up to a vote and it may fail i hope it succeeds i hope it just passes and then we can move on to discussing the entitlement expansion but i have a feeling pelosi's putting it up just to show that progressives have that much power let it fail so that everybody could go back to the drawing board and then when it comes back no republican's going to support the infrastructure bill all the Democrats are going to support both $3.5 trillion and the $1.2 trillion, But then the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill is going to go to Biden's desk. He's going to sign it. The 3.5 is going to go to the Senate where it's dead. And then they're going to keep debating that. So the end result's the same, I think, anyway. But all this bickering and these news headlines and whatever else is leading us in all these directions. But my point is Biden could have avoided that. These bad optics are his creation. He chose to link the two. He didn't have to. So I'm not even going to go through my Trump spiel again. You know my feelings on Trump. There's nothing to do with Trump. It's not relative to Trump. My critiques of Biden are not relative to what Donald Trump is or was or whatever. These are just critiques of Biden. And he's got to do better. His optics have been terrible. His indecisiveness has been terrible. Some of his strategic decisions have been terrible. He's got to, got to, got to, got to do better. It's just not looking great for him right now with all this stuff. And we need this infrastructure bill. So I sincerely hope this infrastructure bill gets passed. There's a lot of debate on this entitlement spending thing. I think ultimately that'll happen, but it's 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 aggravating that we even have to go through these exercises with these congressional leaders, that they're even putting us at risk like this. It really is. It's tough. But look, all that said, I ran 15 minutes over what I would wanted to do. I got Neil coming on. He's going to talk about inflation. I think, you know, I even have a tendency to kind of talk about inflation in terms of these massive entitlement expenditures. But I think, you know, inflation is kind of independent of that in a lot of ways. And uh, although the monetary supply and, you know, flooding the, the economy with money adds to it, I don't know, you know, to what extent it's really, uh, how much it's related, et cetera, et cetera, with our current political climate. So I want Neil to kind of really talk about the technical aspects in and out of everything we're dealing with. I'm going to play... Uh, some music very quickly i'm going to step aside for two minutes and as soon as i get back i'm going to get neil on the line and we're going to talk about inflation and then i'll take your call so hang in with me for two minutes when i come back it's neil coming on to discuss inflation be right back back and Neil is on the line. Neil, how are you, brother?
1: I'm doing excellent. How are you, Larry? I'm
0: good, man. How was your summer?
1: It was good man. Didn't uh wasn't as uh as much of a Bacchanelli as I expected it to be cuz Delta put a uh a uh, hamper on things but uh yeah overall I had a good time how about you?
0: Pretty good man I'm happy for fall I'm a fall guy a little bit more you know it's football season. It, man. I fucking hate fall. <laughs> Do you? We wait wait a minute. It's one thing to dislike winter and cold weather but you hate fall?
1: No, everything dies the sun goes away oh like up god. here in the northeast it's like six months until it's warm again it's just awful <laughs>
0: oh my god I, you have a whole different take than i do on this on this fall i thing. know i've
1: seen your pumpkin spice <laughs> post i'm <sure> you're drinking <laughs> a latte right
0: now dude i am i love pumpkin spice which is i know very extremely basic but i do enjoy it i enjoy it so i got pumpkin bread pumpkin spice i'm all about it but um i'll do, I'll
1: do a pumpkin beer maybe that's about
0: it dude pumpkin beer is not bad I'm, I'm a pumpkin beer fan too um <laughs> All right. So, listen, obviously, a lot of people are concerned about inflation. Um, and and I think we have a tendency to look at like any price fluctuation that goes a little bit higher and be like, oh, my God, this damn inflation. Whether that's true or not, I think we're going to get into tonight. Um, but if you could, I think a lot of people have a general idea. But if you could break it down kind of quasi lame and quasi technical what are we talking about when we're talking about inflation like what are we really discussing
1: right so yeah just as a preface you need to be friends with more economists because you know these uh, any, anything dealing with that macroeconomics like this especially inflation i mean people spend entire careers studying this and the government spends you know millions of dollars studying this because it doesn't matter so much um, so, you know, I'm not exactly like, you know, an expert and, I uh, haven't spent any like, you know, academic time studying this, but, right. you know, generally speaking, you know, inflation is, you know, the decline of the purchasing power of your, of your dollar. So each dollar buys less. Um, so goods and services cost more. And, uh, you know, obviously there's fluctuations in, you know, individual products. There's especially fluctuations of like the gas pump and, and things of that right. nature. And there's, there's regional fluctuation, you know, everybody moves to a certain region and, you know, rents go up. Um, but generally what they're talking about, you know, at the, when they're talking about it in the news, um, like they have all summer, everybody's concerned about it. They're talking about, you know, macro inflation across you know multiple asset types and classes. Right. Um,
2: yeah.
0: So, you know, everybody, I and mean, it sounds obvious to us too, and it should sound obvious to a lot of people, but to a lot of people, it's not, I constantly see people like, well, why don't they just give everybody $20,000? Why don't they give everybody a million dollars and everything would be solved? And like, obviously the more money in circulation, the less a dollar is going to be worth. I mean, would it be fair to say that if you boiled it down to like a really basic layman's thing, it's just, you know, the worth of something is almost determined by its scarcity, right? If it's harder to get, it's worth more. And if everybody has tons of money everywhere, each bill is going to be worth less. Is that kind of a decent yeah,
1: way to? I mean, in economics, they refer to that as helicopter money, like flying over and just uh-huh. throwing money out of a helicopter at people, um, which is you know sort of what they you know did um, as part of uh, some aspects of the stimulus package in 2020. Yes. Um, and I guess carrying over to 2021. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, the primary driver of inflation is. Um, Like the monetary supply, and it's not just, you know, obviously it's good to demonstrate a principle with like the extreme scenario being helicopter money, Mm -hmm. but it can be, you know, economic expansion and increased wages. It can be from tax cuts. Right. All of a sudden they told everybody nobody had to pay taxes next year, we'd have a lot more money. Right. And then we would would spend it. It could also come from increased government spending, like you were just talking about the infrastructure bill. That $3.5 trillion has to be spent. Yes. It could be spent, you know, if you're going to be building roads, bridges, and other infrastructure. I mean, you look at increases in the cost of things like copper when you're talking about commodities. Because uh-huh. you have to have the wires, and then you know everything that goes down in the supply chain to make, you know, your you know your telephone wires, your phone lines, your internet lines, and you know that applies to everything: I mean, pipes, steel, roads, yes. asphalt, gravel, things like that. So let me is ask- there's also some more just just to touch on since we're going to be talking about yep. banking, and there's also some more technical things that can cause you know, inflation such as, you know, like, for example, banks for, you know, historically required to uh, hold uh, some of their money in reserve. Um, Uh But as the Fed did last year, they can say, well, you no longer have to hold any money in reserve. And so that increases the money supply as well.
0: Interesting. And we, I think we touched on that in one of our previous conversations, but I hadn't even, that hadn't even been on my radar. That makes a lot of sense too. Um, So before we even get into like, causes specific to today and and what the fed is doing do you think you know there is an inflation i wouldn't say problem wouldn't classify it as a problem but is there you know inflation occurring today that is relative to recent times considerable or is it kind of just hype is it i mean is there inflation going on in certain sectors or are we kind of misreading things and is it kind of just hype you know what i'm saying is it is it real or are we just talking politically that prices are going up etc cetera, etc cetera, right now feels like there's inflation
1: yeah i mean it's you know I, I always think when i start thinking about like whether or not i feel inflation mm-hmm. i feel like it's more like at the end of the month if you were like you know like our parents used to do like balancing your checkbook at yes. the kitchen table yes you know you would say like oh i spent more money this month but i think like you know we've all moved so much to like credit cards and everything that yes. I, I don't even know like I would notice like unless it was like I went to like you know say if I went to like the same restaurant right you know like every day every you know week once a week and then I realized like oh I got the same thing you know it's like oh I'm paying I'm paying more for this right you know it's really easy to notice like when it's at like the gas pump
0: yes you
1: know, that's easy cause you drive by and it's like oh gas <laughs> yes you know but I mean like the question like do do I think it's like a problem I mean we could talk more in more detail mm-hmm. but like no I sort of a I. I I'm not going to say I agree with the Fed because I don't have their expertise and experience and access to information. But I would say that, like, I defer to them and don't have a problem with their categorization of, like, the current effects of inflation is, like, not entirely unexpected and transitory, meaning that whatever's causing them or the issues are going to eventually iron themselves out.
0: Makes sense. And it was funny because I was at just for that little, you know, anecdotal thing. I was at Walmart recently when I said that I meant it like and I literally spent 20, like not 20, but 10 minutes looking at my check, looking at the the self-checkout, looking at my check because the receipt, I mean, because I was like, wait a minute. It seems like this is a little more pricey for the items I got than I would expect. But I couldn't pinpoint a certain item or whatever. I, I think we know certain materials and things are a little higher, but. Some of that could be expected from the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera, um, and we've discussed that on the show at length. So I get what you're saying. That it's kind of hard to really see, you know, the effects of it and to pinpoint it. And so there are experts that are charged with this very thing. And as of now, you know, they kind of have a theory on where it's going, and we should be okay. With that in mind. This is stuff that I think people know a little less about. Uh, I know something about it, and I know you'd know probably a little more, and I know there's no economists on, but you know, when we're talking about the Fed, the Federal Reserve, if you could give us kind of a general crash course, as lay person's terms as possible, what the Fed does and, and what mechanisms are at their disposal to help them in what they're charged with doing, just to give an overview.
1: Sure. And, you know, just for future uh, podcasts, you know, if it, uh if anything blows up, maybe this um, this whole uh, current little mini um, controversy they're undergoing about uh, the securities that the uh, the Fed governors own, if you ever want to make a podcast about that, we can have a whole debate with your callers about, uh, you know, whether the Fed should exist and whether it's a net positive or net negative. Yes. I know a lot of people are always like, we need to go back to the gold standard, or we'd we abolish the Federal reserve. So be its own <laughs> to
0: be honest, I'm, I've been trying to put together these little like uh, panel discussions, and I have a couple people that make oh, that, that kind of talk about this gold standard thing. So we will discuss that because I think it'd be a great show. To be honest, one day, honestly, we'll talk
1: about that. Yeah. <laughs> so well, anyways, so, uh-huh. yeah. Generally speaking, you know, the Fed has two primary mandates: it's the stable prices and maximum employment. So, you know, stable prices, which, you know, speaks to inflation is, you know, important because it allows for predictability in how much you pay, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, key for planning and investment. Right. um, Both for us and for corporations. Right. Um, And just uh, everyone should just keep in mind for the purposes of this conversation, you know, they've they've generally set a a long-term target over the past decade or so, a long-term target of 2% inflation per year. Okay. Um, And then, you know, with maximum employment, um, there is no set target because obviously that's much more complex. Mm-hmm. However, I would think it was hilarious. It would be hilarious if they just came out and said five percent of you don't deserve to work. So right, that's okay. right. Maximum employment. <laughs> right.
0: Maximum employment is ninety-five percent. Right, right. They wouldn't yeah. do that, but
1: then just Daniel Tosh, like you guys don't deserve jobs. <laughs> right. So, but in in
0: that vein, so they're balancing. I mean, their, their two primary objectives are the maximum employment and the target inflation rate, which they deem acceptable as about two percent how do they seek to kind of balance that? Right. I mean, so are you saying that the more money in the economy, the more employment that exists and they're trying to have enough money that we attain as much employment as possible, but not to exceed, not enough money to exceed 2% inflation.
1: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, we go back to what I said about the primary driver being the money supply. And so, um, you know, they can, um, decrease the money supply by using their tools and also you know if there's um, you know say they think the natural employment unemployment rate should be five percent but you know we're at six percent then you know they can increase the money supply because that will free up uh, money for investment in which will right. involve creating new jobs and so that's that's what they do they just have these sort of uh, blunt tools as chairman Powell has described them and others before him, I'm sure, to to sort of, you know, put your foot on and off the gas to try to uh, reach these these two target mandates.
0: Got you. So now, over the last several, you know, couple of years now, we've been dealing with this pandemic, which obviously caused an abrupt economic contraction because we obviously sat everybody home, we closed everything down. What has the Fed been doing during that process to, you know, help the economy not to completely contract and, you know, help it to rebound? What what exact policy have they been implementing during the pandemic just to orient everybody to where we are?
1: Right. So, you know, some of the tools they have um, in place, you know, everybody's familiar with the or should be familiar with. uh, You hear about like the Fed's Uh, rate. They meet eight times a year. And then, you know, come across the news, oh, rates unchanged, or Fed decided yes. to increase interest rates. Yes. And, you know, what What that means, just to give everyone a little primer on that, is, like, that's, that's their target rate, and that's their target rate for what's called the federal funds rate. Mm-hmm. And the, and the funds rate, not to get too technical here, but the funds rate is the rate at which, like, banks lend to each other overnight. Okay. And so, like the Fed says, like, well, we, you know, if they, they want to increase the money supply or decrease the money supply by, by raising or decreasing rates, they'll, like, you know, set this target rate. And then they have some tools to implement that policy, primarily by paying interest on reserve balances mm-hmm. um, that banks will hold with them or uh, the rates of their just, – just similar things that basically equal rate of return for banks that choose to participate in those programs. Right. Uh, and so that sort of sets, you know, sort of a range – um, what bank what uh, rates the industry should be charging each other and these are all like short-term rates like overnight yes and so you know all financial institutions like they're in the business of what's called maturity transformation they take short-term lending like they borrow mm-hmm. in the short term and mm-hmm. it's the rates are th- as low as they can be because there's not it's, it's the least risky proposition right if I lend you money overnight you're less likely to like, go bankrupt have somebody steal from you things like that it's the same with banks. And what they do to transform right. those maturities is they they lend short term very low rates and then they lend out longer term at higher rates. And so that gotcha. you know when the, so when the Fed lowers those rates that the banks are actually like paying on their on their short term funds, then overall it you know it notches down the expense of say like you know how much you pay on your mortgage,
0: right, things like that, right. So
1: you know during the pandemic, um, you know they've sort of been doing. Everything, uh, every everything that they possibly could. I mean, they've lowered the target rate back to the zero to one quarter of a percent range, mm-hmm. which was where it was held basically from the financial crisis in 2008 all the way through almost through 2016, I believe. Um, right. And th- this was historically low. I mean, we've never seen that in our entire lifetime. And only during the Trump administration did they start to notch those back up which I okay. thought was, was good i mean we can agree with that policy we can't go forever with these artificially low rates and you know the other thing they've been doing is they've just been buying assets uh like you know through we talked about it like in the early 2010s following the financial crisis mm-hmm. they call it quantitative easing yes so they're going yes. out and they're buying bonds and other debt securities on the market and so they uh they were ramping that down during the trump administration and then starting during the beginning of the pandemic they had to they increased their purchases um, and then this time they also uh, I, I believe for the first time started purchasing like corporate debt securities yeah um, and, and so yeah that's basically what they've been doing is it's just trying to increase the monetary supplies so that we don't have a liquidity crisis
0: right. And a liquidity crisis would mean we don't have enough liquid cash in the economy or circulating? but
1: you know it's not there. It's just everybody's scared. It, it doesn't move. You know what gotcha. I mean, It's like the pipes, pipes freeze. The the, money's there, the water's there, but the pipes are frozen. Gotcha. And kind
0: of okay. And so now you said, and I thought this was true, from the financial crisis in around 2008 all the way to around 2016, they were implementing these policies to keep the economy, you know, going and and recovery or whatever. Did we?
1: That's when rates, that's how long the rates were at the zero to one quarter of a percent range.
0: Now, that seems really low. And you said it was almost unprecedentedly low. Did we see in that time uh, rates of inflation that were higher compared to historical rates or, or no? I mean, how did that how did that infect inflation?
1: Um, so don't have the like that far back, okay. Um, like, but it's it was uh, yeah, I don't have that far back data in front of me right now, but yeah, generally they've been they've been good at being, I think it was um, what we've been talking about leave before the, in the years before the pandemic is that they were having trouble getting inflation up to that two percent range.
0: Interesting, that's interesting,
1: so, yeah, right. because, So, like, when that, that, that was sort of the conflict, is that we've had, had these artificial rates, artificially low rates for so long, which have their own negative effects in the economy. They can create bubbles and inflation in certain asset right. prices. They can lead to like risk-taking and speculation and things like that, yes. which we did actually see. Um, but like these, the, but while these rates were this low, they were waiting for inflation to kick up and economic expansion to kick up so right. that they could raise their target rate, and it never really did. That's so that was the sort of a conflict that they were dealing with coming uh, essentially into the, the Trump administration.
0: Interesting. that That is – I did not know that, and I find that really interesting, which maybe is – I don't want to say a limitation, but one of the intricacies and something to look at with regard to the whole Fed system if, if that wasn't happening the way we expected. So then – 2016 or so, the economy, would we say, is that when we kind of start finally recovering from that 2008 thing? What what was it then that enabled them to start to raise rates and, and try to get inflation under control or just get us back to where we thought we should be uh, from a rate perspective? What was it in 2016 that enabled that behavior?
1: oh gosh um i mean it could have been uh stock market valuations i know the unemployment rate was running uh it was consistently improving essentially from mid 2009 so i know like you know going into gosh the beginning of the trump administration right we were around five percent unemployment and you know that's pretty much where we were um before, like right before the financial crisis, it makes sense. So yeah, I mean there was like good economic indicators, and I think there was also probably a belief that like we can't hold, you know, uh, rates artificially <laughs> low, forever. Right. Um. So yeah, and then you know I think that uh, you know maybe maybe a couple times maybe they did actually you know they see. I'm looking at some data now and it shows, you know, there was inflation, you know, like slightly increasing tracking up so that the Fed has the ability to look yes. at all of their data and say, oh, well, you know, I think that, you know, if we didn't do anything right now, we would uh, drive right by our 2 percent target. So, you know, we'll gotcha. a little bit because it's like it's like turning a like an oil tanker.
0: Yes. You know, no, like it makes sense. Yes. You
1: could put the inputs in, but, it, you know, it's the economy. It takes a long time to react.
0: Right, right, right. That makes sense. So they're like, look, there's some indicators here and this is speculative to an extent. But looking at the data, you know, if we didn't do anything, we might drive way by that. And all of a sudden it's inflation is increasing rapidly. We need to. Scale it back now. The the inputs we put in now are going to have an effect slowly and down the road. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, you can sense.
1: see even like the stock market prices before the pandemic. like Right. Things were running up. It looked like a melt-up scenario. Yes. And uh, sort of like it has over the past year. But, um, you know, there were questions even then, like, is this real? Is this a melt-up? Is this just because, um, you know, just it, it, something that the Fed needs to, to get control of? I mean, because they went... From, uh, from their target rate in um, the, the beginning of the Trump administration, or maybe, maybe, uh, yeah, maybe it was uh, between the zero and a quarter percent or a quarter and a half. Right. Um, but then by 2019, they raised it all the way up to um, above two percent wow you know so consistent increases so like they definitely believed that the economy was going to be running hot and they needed to you know decrease the money supply
0: makes a ton of sense now i know this is i kind of have a chronological way i want to go but we have a, a question in the in the chat it was just what about the massive rise of home prices again now you know i know you're into you you're the financial sector is your forte too and i know it's kind of more finance kind of economics is i, I don't want to get too far ahead but there seems to be an increase in home prices. Does that have anything to do with inflation? Or is that just a phenomenon within that sector because of all kinds of factors? You know, like there houses seem to be pretty high priced right now. Is that just because people are moving out of the cities? Does it have something to do with the rates? That's just a question yeah, in the chat. It's
1: a little bit of all of the above. So. Okay the uh, yeah so the the pandemic added an extra layer of complexity to all of like the microeconomic decision making that leads right. individuals to make the decision to buy or sell a home yes. which you know all together all of their actions together is the macroeconomy yes you know but it's there and, and yes it has something to do with inflation and in that you know the uh, the inflation number includes uh, valuation of home prices i, I believe it's the, the owner's equivalent rent Yes. Uh, they, OK. They try to estimate like what their equivalent rent would be based on like their their housing value or something. Yes. So, yes. yes. That actually is factored into inflation when we see those numbers. But, um, you know, I think it's it's definitely like, you know, that stuff's like really regional. Like I think like what what you said about people moving outside the city that yep. actually happened. I mean, we saw that. Yeah. Um, and then. Um, you know, I, there's, uh, there's been some stats coming out over the past, uh, well, over the past six months, really since the spring, um, about that just show like a decrease in, in supply, um, and also like an increase in prices, I guess, for people who like really like had to buy houses. Right. Um, so yeah, another, another complex situation, <laughs> right. but like I, you know, I thought about it is like with the supply side of housing is that like. You know if you were thinking about change and i haven't seen anybody anal- analyze it this way or i haven't seen any data that specifically supports this but just intuitively i was thinking like oh if you were deciding uh, whether or not you were going to change jobs this year mm-hmm. or whether or not you were going to like uh uh um, have a kid and uh need to upgrade your house right. all of those things that go into like what is the demand or the, the supply and demand in the housing industry i thought all of those things were sort of put on hold like a lot right. of stuff was. Like, oh, we're not, I'm not going to go out and try to find a new job this year or have a kid this year because there's so much uncertainty and there's sense. the complexity of the pandemic. Right. You know, so I think it has a lot to do with that. I mean, I've spoken to my brother about this because he's potentially looking to buy a house. Uh-huh. And, you know, we both decided to, like, let things settle out. Yes. You know, yeah. Because, like, prices, prices were so high. Like, the question is, do, do the prices ever come back down?
0: That's what I'm wondering. Yeah, because I'm—I was looking just for that, you know, for the hell of it. I got a little bit of money to switch jobs. I was looking at houses, and it seems so inflated. Just the housing price. That it, let me see if it settles down. But will it? I don't know. I mean, I guess we don't know the answer to that,
1: right? Well, also, you know, the—I actually um, was handling family business down in Virginia this year mm-hmm. and had to sell a home. And right. One thing that we we were talking to folks about it, and this is obviously region specific to Central Virginia, right? Um, but due to the decreased supply in that region, um, what folks were experiencing was that um, people um, say who like wanted or, or had to buy a home, they would have they would you know make offers on multiple homes, however long that takes over a course of weeks or months, right. and each one would get sold out from under them right um, yes and then, so what they would do is they would just when they found the next home that they really like they fell in love with the place they would just blow their load and over make an offer over the offering price right and of course what does that do it increases the, yes statistics the, the on housing prices so, yes like it's definitely <laughs> one of those things where like regardless of the stats even if you went out right now and wanted to buy a house like it just sounds like it'd be more of a hassle than it already usually is made sense you know being underwater in your mortgage pretty quickly, you know, yes. paying, you know, over market and, you know, and also like it might take you a while and you might have a bunch of lot out from under you.
0: Makes a ton of sense, honestly. So that's just a good, just for Rick who asked that question, that's a really good response on that. So now, now Neil, let's talk about the pandemic hits now. So now we've contracted. Now the Fed has went back to a low interest rate Type of scenario as they were pre 2000 like 18 19. They're trying to keep the economy going. It was maybe getting real hot, but they're like, whoa, whoa, it's going to cool off too much. Now where are we? Because now is where you know, aside from the housing prices, it seems as though, and I don't know how much the labor market ties in. I really don't, but it seems like we went to like a, a forced cool down because we mandated everybody to kind of sit home and and whatnot. To now, like, a heat-up where the Delta variant is is causing problems, but overall, like, house building is ticking up, so materials are going higher. Uh, I don't know if shipping costs are getting higher because of increased demand. Uh, It seems like there's, like, a labor – I don't know if there is a labor shortage or not, but it seems like everywhere I go, there's help wanted signs. People are like, oh, we're short-staffed, this and that, the other thing. The economy opened, like, really abruptly, and – and we we spent a lot in these stimulus packages and now we're looking at spending more and the economy kind of artificially was shut down and it's like almost artificially sprung back up what's the fed how does that how does that relate to the fed's work how does that relate to inflation and monetary policy what are we looking at now and you could even get into what the fed kind of discussed this week i know they met but you know post pandemic or coming out of the pandemic what are we looking at in terms of the monetary supply, what the Fed's looking at, the numbers they're looking at, what they think is going to happen? Kind of what's our perspective now?
1: Yeah, so I'm going to go back to the first thing you were talking about and like the potential causes here. Uh-huh. So, like, there are a lot of things that go into causing our current state of inflation. As I said before, it's right. definitely complex. Um, but there are some key things that people talked about. Like, the first thing is like, is this unexpected? Did it come out of nowhere? The answer to that question would be no, okay. because it's generally speaking, it's not unexpected to see inflation during a recovery following a recession. Okay. Um, just due to features of the economy, specifically, like think about like, having to hire new workers and yes. restart operations. But this is especially drastic in industries that have, like, high impedance to, like, expanding operations. So, for example, uh, we saw recently all the talk about, um, like, global shipping, like sea shipping and boats. Yes. Uh, and so, like, you think about, like, that industry, like, just imagine, like, if all of a sudden, like, you needed to increase your capacity. Well, that means building new giant ships or buying giant ships, which takes a uh, long time. And, like, right. do, you know, do you have the certainty that you are going to be a return on investment, considering How much capital that requires and time. Right. So, you know, so like, you know, there are industries that take longer to restart and ramp up operations. We saw this back in the early 2010s after the financial crisis for several years, or maybe it was around 2010 itself, where there were increased rates for shipping via rail in the United States. Yeah. During the financial crisis, what did they do? They sold off. Some stock, uh, rolling stock, as it's referred to the cars, mm-hmm. and then they didn't invest in new stock. Well, when the economy restarted, there was a shortage of cars, so there was an increase in rates. So, right. just things like that, it's just not unexpected to see inflation during a recovery after a recession. right. And then, you know, as we spoke about, like nobody should be surprised for some of the unexpected things that we're seeing, you know, given the you know the pandemic was you know unprecedented in modern times and because that you know uh, changes the microeconomic decision making so yes. like of of individuals so we you know they ever they talk about employment issues. the The Fed last month came out with their beige book, which uh-huh. is some of the research that they put together using their their uh, their branch offices, and because they employ you know hundreds or right. uh, thousands of economists, and in the beige book, they look at the, the economic and financial conditions of each region. huh. And you know, they, one of the most common things mentioned was difficulty filling positions. Right. We talked about it again in the Fed meeting this week, and in, in the press conference, and that um, you know they're they're uh, they're they're taking into account that like the end of unemployment benefits um, yes. may cause uh, an increase in uh, persons going back and looking for work. But at the same time, you know, Powell, uh, Chairman Powell brought up the scenario like, well, what if you were waiting to go back to work? Um, To send, after you send your kids to school, so you don't have to deal with the home care situation. But are you going to do that um, with the uncertainty of the Delta variant or possibly new variants? Are you going to go get a job, but then find out that the school was going to be closed because of a rise in Delta or the next one, and now you have to go home? So a lot of people are uh, possibly waiting for more certainty, and so that leads to um, you know just the the uh, the increase in costs, or in some cases um, you know, closure unavailability of certain like good services and and restaurants and businesses and things like that, that, um, lead to inflation. And then, you know, the other thing you got to think about is like demands for good services and recreation for people who are unable or unwilling to spend that money during the pandemic. Um, you know, for those of us who are fortunate enough to stay employed, um, during the, the, the last year and a half, and then, um, you know, some of those people also work, uh, their families who someone in their household was collecting stimulus money. Right. Um, and so, you know, they want to take trips. They weren't able to take their family vacation. Everybody's going to be taking their family vacations right. at the same time. Like I guarantee you that like, you know, the beach houses and everything are going to be way more expensive for the next two years. Um, yeah. And this then, makes a know,
0: lot of sense. It really yeah. does. It's just funny when you break down like examples because I guess kind of inherently we know this stuff, but when you're breaking it down and I'm sitting here like glancing outside, just thinking about it, I'm like, yes, like if you close a business, then the business next door, there's more demand. The price goes up. If everybody wants to get into a beach house or I've noticed golf courses, I suck, but I play are like always ridiculously packed and the price have gone up. Why? Because people had this pent up income and desire to. You're right. It's all these factors. It's so interesting how they're interconnected. It seems inherent. But when you explain it, I'm thinking, I'm like, yeah, this makes a lot of sense.
1: Well, the other thing, too, was like the um, you know, when we talk about inflation, we're talking about like the consumer price index, which is, you know, what we're paying as consumers. But then there's also the producer price index, which is which is it shows. Uh, the price that uh, goods producers are getting um, for the things that they create. And that's up as well. And that, I mean, you think about like every step, every business that's in a supply chain for some end product, be it a television or a piece of fruit or something like that. And like all of those persons have employees. Right. So they're all dealing with the same issues. And they also deal with any impedance they have to re-expanding or uh, ramping up their operations if they slowed down during the pandemic. So it's throughout the entire supply chain. So like when 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 Chairman Powell and the rest of the Fed says that they believe that this inflation is transitory, it's the belief that those issues are going to iron themselves out. People are going to get back to work. And, you know, people are going to be able to ramp up their operations and prices will return to some normal level.
0: So that and what you just said, I just want to hone in a little bit just so we're focused on it, because I know, you know, you kind of sent me some some good points on everything, too. And I think that's one of them. When you say transitory, you kind of said it. But like, let's talk about that. The Fed has been meeting. And I think they met this week and essentially they're obviously making diagnostic decisions and 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 overall analyses of the situation. You said transitory. I know you already explained it, but kind of just I want you to just hone in on it again. Is that their current position that this inflation is transitory, i.e. it's expected and it will iron itself out? I know I just answered my own question, but I mean, is that kind of what it's a
1: good question? I mean, like they've been using the word transitory at least for the past three months or so. And they've been. Consistent. Chairman Powell has been consistent. Uh-huh. Um, the, so during the press conference, um, you know, they, they people ask you know him to define that term, and mm-hmm. the way he defines it is that you know price increases will happen, mm-hmm. but they will stop, and they don't leave. They're not going to leave a permanent mark on the inflation process. He did make a note, however, that like we won't necessarily get those price gains back.
0: Right. Which, okay. which is.
1: Really, interesting. I mean, that's where, like, you know, right. free market forces come in. Like, you know, if you if all of a sudden you're charging me 50% more for a stake, you know, I would imagine that, you know, free market forces would eventually bring those prices back down. Right. But, yeah, just because the, the transitory inflation goes away, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to get those prices back. You know, it's been, like you talk about housing. Like, it, the housing prices, like, might not necessarily come down from these inflated levels.
0: Right. Even though the inflation is transitory, the, you know there's other market factors. Other market factors, I guess, at play that you would think would, would weigh in and help to regulate it, but may or may not, based on those market factors, which are variable and complex. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so they met this week, the Fed, right? And I guess when you refer to a press conference and stuff, you're talking about this week. Am I right? Like, So the, the Fed said it's transitory. And, and what it was the concrete result of that diagnosis i.e. what's their plan going forward
1: right so um as i mentioned before um you know they've got the fed funds rate target
0: low Mm -hmm.
1: pretty much as low as it can go Mm -hmm. and then they've also been purchasing assets and they've been they never stopped purchasing assets they've been consistently purchasing assets um since um the the pandemic kicked off and so you know they're, so they're looking at two things, and this is what the market is anticipating, and the stock market reacts a lot to this stuff. It's when are they going to taper their asset purchase program, not, not meaning that they're going to sell those assets back to the market, right. but they're just going to t- taper the rate at which they purchase. Okay. And then also, everyone's concerned about when are they going to raise the rates, which they refer to as liftoff. Uh-huh. so So. You know, everybody's been talking about this for the last several meetings, and it's getting a lot of attention, um, and, you know, it creates a scenario where, uh, as far as stock market prices are concerned, bad economic news was actually good news for the stock market, because it meant that the Fed wasn't going to taper just yet.
0: Oh, so gotcha. It was,
1: it was this weird <laughs> interplay that I've never personally seen before, where we would get a, um, like a, a bad jobs report. Yes. And the stock market would go up.
0: Yes. Yes. we get a
1: bad inflation report and the stock market will go up. And it's because that just means that the Fed would be forced to continue their asset purchases and things like that. So it creates a weird incentive structure and a market dynamic. But anyways, this meeting, you know what they talked a lot about. And when, when we say this meeting, as you mentioned, this is the Federal Open Market Committee or FOMC, and they meet about eight times a year, mm-hmm. scheduled and more if uh, if necessary. Um, and then they come out and they do a, a press conference afterwards, and they mm-hmm. release a statement. So um, what they what they did this time is that they talked about a lot in the Q and A, which is um, define like what um, what their test would be to determine when they taper. And so they call right. this substantial further progress to the inflation target and maximum employment. Uh-huh. And so, what that means is they're pretty much pretty much ready to start tapering. Chairman Powell said he believes that the te- that test is all but met, okay. and so everyone pretty much expects in, in, in the November meeting when they next meet, they're going to announce tapering to begin in uh, in December, you know, by the end of the year, and then end the middle of uh, mid 2022, um, which translates into. Um, you know, reducing purchases by about 15 billion per month for eight months, ending you know sometime in June or July. Now, for the Fed funds rate, which you know is really what's going to affect uh-huh. our um, you know loans and mortgage uh, costs and student loan costs, refinancing and things like that. Um, you know they have what's called. I mean that's referred to as liftoff, mm-hmm. um, and they have their liftoff test, which is you know pretty much in line with what we were talking about previously. Labor market consistent with max employment, and inflation on track to moderately exceed two percent. Right. And you know the, the the committee sees you know liftoff and rates occurring sometime in twenty twenty three. So okay. you know, that's what's wow. going over the the medium term for the Fed, and that's really what I came brought away as the highlights of this week's meeting
0: got you so so this all these complex you're talking about too with like people getting back into the labor market everything kind of ironing out as you put it it won't get to a point where they're going to do liftoff until 2023 where they're at a place they think where they're going to where that's going to make sense it's going to take that that time another year year and a half to get there
1: yeah i mean they obviously have access to great resources of data and economists right um you know it's it's not outside the realm of possibility that they would have to um, be very reactionary and, and, and accelerate yes. that. Like, you know, for example, if all of a sudden you know Delta went away next week and everybody went to work and all that pent up demand, um, and and uh, you know uh, savings uh, translated into uh, rocketing inflation.
0: Right, um, right. And
1: you know, of course, they would be you know on on their on the, on the back foot. Uh, you know, reacting, um, which would not be good, but. Um, Yeah, I mean, generally, uh, you know, one one of the things they do in their statements for these meetings is they survey um, the uh, members of the committee and the remaining um, uh, Fed branch presidents, um, you know, what they see in terms of, like, their medium and and long-term outlook. And generally, you know, the committee is in agreement that rate liftoff will be late 2022 or 2023. And uh, Chairman Powell also indicated that the uh, group was... In agreement on the uh, potential timing of of the taper. So it's, you know, right now, um, I think that uh, they're they're pretty much in agreement, as I said. But at the same time, when they were surveyed on, like, the risks to Uh inflation, for example, they said, like, the risk currently, as they see them, were more to the upside. As in there could be, you know, not there could be uh, increased inflation, not not to the downside where they would surprisingly see decreased inflation. Right. So. So,
0: So they think it's transitory to iron itself out. But the risk factor, they're on alert, though. They're like, well, we're still watching, though. There's a possibility this thing will exceed what we think.
1: Yeah, just like GDP, like GDP, you know, they're surveyed on their estimates in the medium and long run on those as well. And the risk is to the downside, right? Because we don't know, like Delta seems to be on the decline, but any day now, like a new variant could pop up. And so obviously, like the risk to to GDP and the overall economy reopening is to the downside.
0: Really, really interesting. And so I actually feel a little more comfortable because it seems like there's all these complex variables, but there's – highly educated sophisticated people not that I didn't know that but they're they're more so watching them and reacting to it and, and making projections based on it than trying to manipulate it kind of before they see it I it, it, I know it sounds convoluted but I, I kind of understand what they're doing a little better and it's it seems good let me ask you this with these you know what if any impact do these massive spending bills? have on monetary policy inflation i remember last time you we had talked about stimulus you're like you know they allocate certain funding but it has to actually get liquidated and place in the economy and that takes time i mean is there what what these massive spending bills that were passed and now are proposed do they pose you know a risk to, to increased inflation it seems that they would cuz if you're looking at a basic level where well, you're just pumping more liquidity into the economy. Right. I mean, what what's your p- perspective on that? And I know it could be partly financial, monetary, political, whatever your perspective is, just as as you. I mean, what's your perspective on those massive spending bills at a time when it seems like we're headed toward recovery. We may overheat, but we're kind of keeping an eye on it. This massive spending is it a risk to increase inflation is it what we need still that will it be tapered by our other mechanisms how how do those affect this this whole situation Looking I mean, it
1: depends on what is targeted at I mean if you're talking about I mean first of all as we mentioned before you know any any government spending has the potential to uh, increase inflation depending on like what they're spending their money on. right um, so you know like the, but I mean like it, it's just really like where that money is targeted like infrastructure I think is a great place to spend money because right. um, you know there have been you know studies over the years and so that you know incre- infrastructure spending uh, increases economic activity and you know really because you know we run these deficits and um, in, in, our, in our governments and our fiscal policy right. is based on our ability to borrow um, right. you know really people are you know the question is always asked, Um, you know, is it, is it good to, to spend money that we don't have? And, you know, I saw something that was written in the last six months. Somebody, somebody made the point. It was that like, yeah, if you get a good rate of return on like what you're actually spending on spending it on tax cuts for corporations or tax cuts for the rich is not a good rate of return as we've seen over the past 30 or 40 years. Um, But, you know, spending (laughs) on infrastructure is a good rate of return. You know, spending money. Bombing third world countries is not a good rate of return. Right. At least not. (laughs) For the broad economy, it's great for the military-industrial complex. Right. Um, If I may get a little progressive here. No, you
0: can. You do. I know you'd, and you're welcome to, bro.
1: You're welcome to. But infrastructure—that's why I was excited about infrastructure. I think (laughs) if they also wanted to spend money, I know um, early in this administration they were talking about spending money on something akin to the Green New Deal. Right. Um, You know, that's a great idea too. Like transitioning our economy to the future. However many billions or trillions of dollars it would cost. Is was going to be an excellent return on investment. So right. it really depends on like what they're what they're spending their money on. Right. But you know also when you look at you know inflation risks over the next year or two based on congressional action and spending bills, um, you know you need to look at um, you know they're talking about uh, tax increases right. um, for corporations and rich persons. So you know going back to our earlier conversation, that is the potential to slightly decrease um, the money supply. So of course you know the Fed is going to be taking all of this into account. Um, you know, that's pretty much what they do. You know, they meet eight times a year, but the rest of the time they're monitoring the economy and doing economic research and really doing the groundwork. So, right. um, yeah, I mean, they're going to take all of that account. And I'm sure that's, you know, at least partially included in their existing projections.
0: That makes it that's a great answer, to be honest with you. I mean, it's um, it makes a lot of sense. And I think it gives even more of a incentive for the people, obviously, that have the power, the people in Congress and who are actually looking at this, but also us and even Advancing opinions or analyzing the different things that are on the table to look at not just the raw numbers of expenditures, etc., but where it's going. And like you said, tax increases could actually taper inflation in some ways, especially if we're getting a good ROI on other things we're spending on. You know, I'm a huge advocate of infrastructure. I think we're way behind, so I think it it makes a lot of sense. Um, it's just good
1: high speed rail all over the east coast. Dude,
0: yes, that's what I, mean. I went on Amtrak from Newark to DC and honestly it was a great ride. It was like not bad at all. I actually loved it, but imagine if it was faster, like more up to date, etc. I was like, this could really be and I know the Northeast Corridor doesn't have the problem a lot of other uh, Amtrak services do. Where yeah,
1: I take the train south of D.C. to get to Central Virginia and yeah. share lines that are owned by CSX. Yes, so they're older. You're using diesel because they don't have the yes. overhead lines anymore. And then also there's you know there's going to be a speed limit. But, um, you know, I've, I've seen 120 miles an hour going through North Philadelphia. So it's uh, the Northeast regional between New York and D.C. is actually a pretty decent ride if you're not delayed.
0: Yes. And we and it's actually I think it I don't know how they do the budget sort of. But I think it returns like a surplus because it's actually heavily used as compared to some other lines. But we should invest in that a lot more. I think then the highway systems have all kinds of problems as we know historically that contributed to some of our issues with redlining and whatnot. But we can all agree they spurred a lot of development over the, you know, once they were built, a lot of economic development and productivity happened because we invested in these new infrastructure, you know, mechanisms to get around. It's just it's a no-brainer to me and we're long overdue for that. So it's nice to hear that it's not necessarily going to put us at risk for inflation just because we're spending. It just depends where it goes. So that was just an awesome answer you gave me. It's it's enlightening.
1: Yeah. So and the other thing about yeah. you know, the highways is that, you know, then this is like a little off topic, obviously. But, um, yeah, I mean, they're always expanding highways. I mean, like Houston's got a big problem like D.C. They're always under construction. Yes. Um, but, you know, I wonder what the return on investment is. You know, when you're expanding a highway from like six lanes to seven. Especially right. The of you know, the studies that have been highlighted over the past years about induced demand, like it doesn't actually uh, decrease traffic. Uh, to
0: right. uh, expand a highway
1: because it induces demand. People will start moving to that area or start taking that route. And then you end up with the exact same traffic. So I'd be interested to see how they target some of the infrastructure spending and see if these do expand highways. I think there's um, unless you're building new highways and not right. existing ones, I doubt there's a high rate of return on that. But
0: yeah, well, no, I, I agree, because I think part of the part of the thing that gives me pause on the infrastructure bill is actually how much is earmarked for highway like automobile stuff where i feel like a lot more should be in the rails and the ports and it's just an interesting thing to look at people are in a lot of republicans and not to get too partisan but are on board with it when it involves the highway stuff but but what you just said it might not have as high of a return as some of the innovative you know infrastructure investments so it's definitely worth worth noting um Dude, we could you and I are going to talk and we could talk for hours about all this philosophical stuff. It's always a pleasure to have you on and just personally to hear all your answers and the things you can kind of shed light on. It's just awesome to hear your ideas and thoughts. And it I benefit from it, as I as I always do. I know the audience did both live and and who's going to hear it later on the downloads. Um, but I really appreciate you taking the time to come on, to do the research, to engage the way you do. It's always a pleasure. It's a huge asset to the show. I'll talk to you off this too, just about maybe a panel discussion. Then is you and I just talking because we could talk for hours about this stuff. Um, But I appreciate you coming on, brother. I really do. And hope to have you back on again very soon when another issue arises that I think uh, you could weigh in on, which is several. So it'll be soon.
1: Yeah. Very kind words. I appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, I really enjoy coming on and talking with you and getting a little back and forth going. So yeah, I'd be happy to do a panel discussion or anything else you want to talk about.
0: Cool. Neil. All right. I'll talk to you soon, brother. Enjoy your weekend. Thanks for coming on again. And and we'll talk very soon.
1: You, you too, buddy. Talk later. All right. Neil later.
0: Another, another good appearance by another awesome, awesome person with a lot of insight. I learned so much from these conversations. So like I get engrossed in it and it's funny cause you guys are on one side and I'm just set up looking out the window, just getting engrossed in the conversations. It's it's really a, a cool thing. So I actually feel even more, um, I kind of have a different outlook on the whole situation, like a panoramic view on the inflation issues, on the bills that are pending. You know, it's just something, it's food for thought, really, in the truest sense of the phrase. Um, so I, I know people are going to get a lot from that, especially... Uh, in the downloads. So I appreciate Neil coming on and, and kind of breaking that stuff down. I got a lot to digest from that actually. Um, yeah, the sirens. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like I go back and forth with whether the sirens and the, and the city sounds are organically like artistically authentic for this podcast, because I am broadcasting from where I am or if they are a hindrance to the audibility of what we're talking about, uh, I kind of go back and forth for now. I'm staying with the organic thing and I've got so many ideas to kind of expand this podcast and kind of get it out there further. And there's marketing mechanisms and things that play into that, that I have to do things on my end to kind of access. And I will um, but I know the sirens were there. Hopefully, you guys could still hear Neil. Um, and and one of the awesome things about him and other guests is like I know a lot of different people's. Um, <laughs> yeah, Rexy. I'm so a lot of different people's. I know everybody's like political persuasions, their personal beliefs, et cetera, et cetera. But like one of the best things about this cast and like Rick has done it. He's called and played devil's advocate. Neil and I let's break down objectivity a lot of times. Sean Bracken, who's like goes off on on political things. He like we all maintain this like cerebral approach, and then when it's time, like we'll we'll impart our opinions on it, but it's always an informed opinion based on the facts we're discussing, and that's just like one of the best assets of the show I always. I told you, around noon, I'm like, oh, geez, I got the show. I got so much to do. Around 7, I'm like, oh, I'm getting excited. I'm in the mood. By the end of the show, I'm always just exhilarated. I wind up texting everybody like, oh, great show, great show. I love this. I love that. And I'm like that again now. I just had a great a great show, stumbled through the monologue a little. I apologize, but you know, I think I made it through. And then Neil just had a great conversation, which is now going to be available to people to learn about these things, which is just absolutely, absolutely dope. I love it. So uh, for Neil to kind of break that stuff down, I really appreciate it. For you guys joining me, I appreciate it. I still got a couple minutes for calls. If anybody wants to, to call in uh, on the app or uh, the Skype line, I'll take some calls. Uh, well, we got a couple minutes. So I'd say we can keep it to a, you know, a couple minutes limit. We can uh, We can do it. Wanted me to invite God's dog. I don't know why. Was that like a was that a prompt that made sense? Was that was that suggesting that the algorithms that good these days? Rick, can you hear me? I can hear you. Oh, see, I can can hear, you hear Rick, can you, can't hear me.
2: Can now? you can hear me now?
0: Now, yeah, I can actually. What's up?
2: Nothing. I just wanted to call in because you know I was cooking some meatballs and sauce, and you were playing some Sinatra, so it was like kismet. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, how's it So going no, but in? it's, it's going great. I'm boiling the spaghetti right now. Hey, forget about it. <laughs> Hello. Hello. So no, but I wanted to call in and just real quick say about this capital thing today, my wife had to leave work early. She works like right by the Capitol and mm-hmm. all these yahoos showed up with their ARs and AKs strapped across their chest, protesting the people who instigated this whole recount bullshit. They're like, we need some real Republicans.
0: Are you so? Yeah, that's, but doesn't, that just, doesn't, doesn't that just solidify, just that, solidify that there's solidified. nothing you to change? Yeah, hang on. Like they, like I'm going to try you
2: know, to get you off speaker. Huh? I'm going to try to get you off speaker. Hang on. All right. Well, apparently I don't know how to do that. So let's just proceed.
0: Oh, by the way, you oh, sound great. You right sound right?
2: Yeah, my, it's it works when I don't have my computer on. I had you in the kitchen while I was cooking because that's the only way I could listen to you and cook. It seemed right.
0: It makes sense. Um <laughs> you're saying that they get the lie they want to hear. They're not a real Republican. Like that's where we are. They just want to know they just want Trump to win objectivity, facts don't matter, even it's their own people telling them. There's nobody they're gonna trust unless the person says what they want to hear, then they're trustworthy. I mean it's brutal. Right.
2: These, yeah. these people were 100% biased all the way across the board between the politicians trying to hold on to their base and the people doing the recount and the people that volunteered to do the recount. I mean, they asked you questions. If you were a Democrat, you weren't in the recount, period.
0: Well, yeah, and, and they did the recount themselves and it still came out and they're still angry. You know what I heard the other day? A buddy of mine gave me some advice and I thought it was a good line. He said – a good tactic I've, i somebody said to him or whatever was when you're arguing with somebody, you just say, what level of proof would you need for you to change your position? And, yeah, if, not there, gonna answer that. and if there's no, ant- but if there's no level of proof, then you might as well just stop talking to them. And if they specify a level of proof, then go out and provide it to them. But otherwise, like there's no sense in talking, you know, these no, people, like no level of proof, like would, would, would suffice.
2: Yeah, there's nothing that would convince them. Just like that guy I was telling you about, he said, oh, you made a logic flaw. And I was like, I broke down the sentence for him and, and defined two words, which were simple words, which was portray and penchant, right? And I explained to him how the initial post was about movies. And I was talking about the wokeness in you know modern films and, and in TV, right? Being all geared towards the marginalized groups in the world. Right. Yes. And, okay. and he made it sound like, well, you're generalizing and you don't know and you don't understand. And I, so I broke it down. And then, like I told you, he said, well, thank you for correcting your logic f- flaw. And I said, dude, I just defined the statements I used in my sentence. It's the same sentence. Right. right. And he's like, well, you know, words can have different meanings. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's just moving the goalpost, though. It's, yes.
0: It will never get to like, it's just, I think, a group. Of people and it doesn't matter they can, they're they from all different ideolo- ideologies, all different political sides, yep. whatever. It's just a group of people and it's going infuriatingly and increasingly larger that you can't engage in objective conversation with and it's just futile and it just drives us nuts. That's why we're yeah. better off Talking to each other and and just sharing it amongst people that want to engage in that. We can disagree ideologically, but at least we'll talk to each other objectively. These people will do it. It's just, it's crazy. I'm glad you called with that perspective from Arizona today because it just ensures us that no matter what we do, there's going to be people with strapped out there saying they don't agree with it. And those people are dangerous. I don't know how to combat them anymore because even their own people giving them objective information is not enough. It's scary.
2: Yeah, right. Right. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. It's, uh, anyway, that's what I wanted to call about. I'm probably going to move to New Jersey at some point if house prices come down. I'm just tired of Arizona. So
0: Bring your ass out here. We'll love it. And just, just FYI, there's another barbecue next July, too. So if anything happens, we'll talk in the meantime. But love the call, Rick. Appreciate the perspective. We're actually going to get shut off now for the over two-hour thing in a minute. So it's perfect timing, brother. Awesome. That's to hear right. I, got got I got
2: some spaghetti. I got some spaghetti. I got to eat anyway. So we're good. Eat
0: <laughs> it. And, uh, your, your panel's coming up. We'll talk mm-hmm. about that soon. And we'll talk to everybody uh, till later. Good night to All Rick right. and good night to everybody. We're about to end. Later, right, guys. Later, Rick. Good night, everybody. Thanks for joining Logic and Larry podcast. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Can't wait. Good night.